Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 6. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. <laughs> to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. <clears throat> and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Morning. It's good to be with you. If you do have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Isaiah chapter 9 if you haven't already. Uh, and let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, we thank you so much uh, just for, um, we thank you for your word. Uh, and as many of us know with our, our minds and as Linda expressed with her heart, um, we just know that your word has power. There's life and hope in your word. And so uh, I just pray, Lord, that you just open the eyes of all our hearts uh, to see the hope of Christmas in Isaiah chapter 9 uh, this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, so uh, one, of, one of the favorite parts of my job uh, is the money. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, definitely not true. Uh, no, one of my favorite parts of my job uh, as a pastor is officiating weddings. Like, I love officiating uh, weddings, particularly uh, for couples that I personally know, um, to where we get to see them walk through the engagement process, uh, the proposal, and then the engagement, and there's the excitement and anticipation of, 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 of getting married. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, that, that time of uh, preparing and premarital counseling, just this excitement of anticipation is both a time of celebration because you're celebrating like, oh man, like we're, we're doing this, we found each other, we've committed to one another, you're celebrating. But on the other hand, it's also a time of, of longing, right? It's a time of, oh man, we can't wait to, to get to uh, that day. Uh, my wife and I had a year-long engagement. Uh, don't recommend that. That's a long time, but it's a long time of anticipation. Excitement on the one hand, but anticipation and uh, longing on the other. And Advent season is just like that. Advent season is just like that. It's a season of anticipation. Patient, uh, and, and, and it's also a, a season of, 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 uh, of uh, excitement. The Advent season is what the Christian church has historically called these weeks leading up to Christmas. And Advent simply means arrival. 
It means coming. It's a season to, to sort of slow down and to see our current position between two realities, how on the one hand we remember an arrival that 2,000 years ago the maker of men became a man himself to save us from sin, from brokenness, from death, and to usher in the kingdom of God. And so there was an arrival that happened that we celebrate at Advent time, at Christmas time, but then we also look forward to what will happen. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus when all things will be made new. And evil, sin, and death will be no more. And that's what the Christmas season is truly about. There's been a resurgence in the last few years, particularly in the American church, that we sort of reclaim uh, this, this word Advent rather than just talking about the Christmas season, but talking about the Advent season because we're recognizing those two things. The fact that not only did Jesus come, but we long for him to come again. Now, I'm a big fan of all the cultural sort of Christmas flair, right? Like the decorations, the parties, blasting Bing Crosby from uh, our Alexa at home, binging the Home Alone series. Like, I'm here for all of that. In fact, I want to see you, every single one of you at our Christmas party uh, next, next weekend. That's, that's next Sunday. We'd love to see every single one of you so we can celebrate together, have fellowship together, and just enjoy good food and good drink and one another uh, together that uh, afternoon and evening. But at some point, in the midst of all the Christmas craziness, at some point, we need to push through the weeds of all that flair and consider why is this season even a thing? What is the truer meaning of Christmas? What is it that Jesus already accomplished and what is it that he's promised to do? And so we're going to look at sort of three chapters, we can call them, in this Advent story over these next three Sundays. First, we're going to look at the anticipation of Jesus, why we long for him, why we need him. Uh, Secondly, next week, we're going to look at the arrival of Jesus, uh, just the good news of his arrival and the significance of the incarnation. And then uh, lastly, uh, on the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to look at the adoration of Jesus. Just what does it mean to worship him, to know him and to love him and worship him as God? So to start us off, We're going to look at the anticipation of Jesus, working our way through Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, which, uh, as many of you know, Isaiah is an Old Testament book, which might cause us you to think, you know, like, why are we in the Old Testament if we're talking about Christmas, about Jesus? It's because this Old Testament book points forward to, in great anticipation, the arrival of Jesus. It looks forward to, with great anticipation, the first Christmas. It just shouts, especially in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9, it just shouts the significance of the Christmas season. Now to give you some context on the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing this book with uh, two, uh, he's writing this, this, the, the accounts of, uh, of the book of Isaiah to a people that have been suffering and in anguish. Isaiah describes a people that are longing, the people that are depressed, the people that are in turmoil. They are in spiritual darkness longing 
for the dawn of a new hope. So that's the first sort of point that I want us to work through in this text this morning, is just the reality that, that not only they, but we are haunted by darkness. We are haunted by the presence of spiritual darkness. We can try to pretend it's not there. We can try to wish it away. But the fact of the matter is, in a broken and fallen world like the one that we inhabit, we are still haunted by the presence of darkness. You see, the condition that Israel was in 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 Isaiah is they were broken, they were beaten, they were longing for hope. And this story in the first several chapters of Isaiah is really a microcosm of a world that has been ravaged by sin. Israel themselves in these verses, they were feeling beat up and broken and in turmoil, but that really is just a small picture of what's happening at a greater and grander scale. That's what spiritual darkness is. It's it's anywhere without the truth, goodness, and beauty of God. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that when sin entered the world, that it, it, it fractured all of creation. And that's why we long for something more. That's why we hope for something more than, than, than just this. Look at verse 1 with me of Isaiah chapter 9. It says that, that there will be, describing their condition, it says there will be no gloom for her, speaking of Israel, who was in anguish. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Galilee, you might recognize, that's where Jesus would eventually do his ministry on earth. Right? Now, it's helpful to know here sort of the history about Galilee and why it's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. You got to understand that when this was written, the world was already broken, already stained and broken by sin, and Israel in particular was suffering greatly. Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 through 8, we see have increased suffering over and over again. But Galilee in particular, they got the worst of it. Like this place was the pits. No one wanted to get stuck in Galilee. Like it's in the northern part of Israel, which if you know your geography, there's like mountains on each side. And so back in Old Testament times, every time Jerusalem would get invaded, which was quite a bit, the enemies would slide in from the north between this mountain pass and they would destroy Galilee first because it was a small uh, town on their way in. And so Galilee got repeatedly pillaged and burned to the ground. And around this time in particular, there were invaders that would lay siege on Galilee. And then when they would go to battle in Jerusalem, uh, on their way back, like years later, uh, after years of war, those same invaders, they'd hit Galilee again. They'd be like, oh, look, they've, they, they've kind of rebuilt themselves. They've got more stuff that we can take. Like, let's hit them again. And so verse 5 of Isaiah 9, we also see this language about these, 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 these uh, uh, enemies marching in battle in these bloody garments. It's painting this disturbing picture of the violence that goes on in this small town of Galilee. You see, this was an area that was marked uh, by centuries of death and danger 
and violence. No one wanted to live there. The people that were there felt like they had to be there, right? Like no one wanted to visit there. There are no Airbnbs to rent in Galilee at the time. It's just awful. And yet this is a small picture of what's happened to the world because of sin. This is a small picture of what is still, in some sense, going on in the world because of sin. And if we want to really understand the significance of the Advent season, if we want to really understand the hope that Christmas brings, then we need to step into the reality of this darkness to see it for what it is. I love the way that Fleming Rutledge articulates this in her great book on Advent. She says, the authentically hopeful Christmas spirit actually has, has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Advent begins in the dark. And so we begin our, our, our voyage into the Advent season by really acknowledging the reality of the dark. It's this dark spot that becomes ground zero for the light of the world, Galilee. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen, though, a great light. He, he's gone on for eight chapters about just the, the turmoil that's going on in this region. And then in Isaiah 9, verse 2, he says, though all these people who've walked in darkness, they've now seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now, you got to understand here that, that Isaiah is speaking prophecy here. He's describing the 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 the, uh, the 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 coming of Jesus as though it's already happened. He said, "The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone." Right here in the middle of this dark spot on the map is the landing zone for the light of the world. And look at this: the darkness and the sin that we see in Galilee is. Like we said, just a snapshot of the condition of the world, right? Now, we really need to sit with that. We really need to, 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 to wrestle with that, right? You remember that show? Um, uh, what's it called? The OC, right? Um, great show, right? So, <laughs> but remember that uh, OC? Uh, the, the, it was called The OC, and it took place where? In in the OC, but what what town in particular? In Laguna Beach, right? Because like for most people, uh, like Laguna Beach is sort of like a snapshot of the OC, right? Of what Orange County life must be like, what it must look like, right? And so the the snapshot of despair that we see in Galilee is in some sense a picture of what's been going on and spreading throughout the world. The darkness we read about in Galilee is just a snapshot of the kind of brokenness that we see all throughout the world. And so even the most hardened skeptic among us just has to admit that something's gone wrong in the world, right? 
things are not what they should be. We all have this deep sense of that. Like according to Romans 8, our, 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 our souls groan in eager longing with all of creation for things to be restored to what they were, they're supposed to be. We all long for the good life that we all sense is somehow lost. This is the chord that C.S. Lewis struck, or struck when, when he said, uh, probably his, one of his more famous quotes, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. We were made for something more. We were made for another world, not a broken one like the one that we currently inhabit, but a renewed one, not a world plagued by the darkness of human history, but a world that's illuminated by the light of Christ, healed by his healing, touched. That's what we were made for. We long for that light to shine. And that is why from the very moment that the universe was fractured by sin, God began to lay out and unfold his plan to eventually send a savior who would rescue us from the mess of our lives, the sin in our hearts, and all that is broken in this crazy world. And that leads us into the next verses where we see that we have a hope in the dawn of new light. Number two, we have hope, a real hope, a lasting hope in the dawn of new light. You see, it's against the backdrop of this darkness described in the previous verses that God gives good news through the prophet Isaiah. He says, light has come. Light has shone. This is the Christmas story. That is the Christmas story. Read verse 2 again with me. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Again, Isaiah is speaking in the past tense like it already happened because he's prophesying about something uh, that is so true, so set in stone, that he writes about it as though it's already happened, right? He's prophesying about something that won't happen for many more years, but, but by speaking in the past tense, he's using a literary device that you see in the Old Testament. I mean, they call it prophetic perfect, where you talk about events on the horizon as though they were already in your rearview mirror. This is his way of saying, look, this, this coming of this new light, it's as good as done. Why can he say that? Why can he say that? It's because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah knows that this is the sovereign plan of God. You see, some of us here in this room, we're feeling the effects of a dark and broken world. Maybe you've had a really hard year. You don't know really if you, if, if you made any progress this year. You don't know if you're really going to move forward in the next. You're feeling broken, down, troubled, sad. But in the midst of those circumstances, in the middle of that 
valley. Let me ask you, what promises in God's word are a comfort to you? What truths give you hope? What are the promises that you're clinging to, to where you're like, man, this promise for me is as good as done because it's in God's word? What comforting truth, though you can't see it or feel it, you just know to be true, and so you just cling to it? Man, if you don't have an answer to that question, you need to find it. God's word is a treasure. So many promises. Namely, the promise of a savior. God with us. A good shepherd who cares for us. Many of us who are in home groups, uh, we've spent the last uh, several weeks going through uh, a study in Psalm 23. And we've just been comforted with the repeated reminder that God is a good shepherd who's with us, with us to lead us, with us to guide us, with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. When you're in that valley, what promises in God's word are a comfort to you? My wife, Alyssa, is really good at asking this question. Whenever she's, uh, her and I are talking or she's counseling someone who's going through a hard time, she'll, she'll ask them uh, that question. Some of you know that because she's asked you this question. She'll ask, hey, what truths from God's word are you, are you clinging to right now in this moment? What truths from God's word are a help to you right now? What promises are you meditating on and trusting in? could be that you're struggling to believe that God is in great and in control, and so anxiety is taking over. It could be that you're struggling to believe that God is enough to satisfy your soul, and so you're turning to your usual vices like alcohol or pornography. And it could be that you're struggling to believe that God forgives you and loves you, not based on your performance, but on Jesus and his grace. Or maybe you're struggling to believe that God is with you in your pain and with you in your suffering, that he'll never leave you or forsake you. What are you struggling to believe in that you need a promise from God's word to hold on to? The sure promise of hope. That's what God provides here through Isaiah. God's people are receiving this word from Isaiah, this letter uh, in, when, in the middle of deep darkness. But God says to his people, he says, light has shown. Light is coming. Light has dawned. See, that's the message of Christmas. That is the hope of Advent, that unless God revealed himself through the Son and sent him into the world, then there is no light in the world. On them light has shone, he says. Notice that small phrase, on them. On them light has shone. This, this light, this hope, it's from beyond us. It's from above us. 
This hope comes by God stepping into our trash. God coming down to us. This is God coming to us. It's God breaking into our filthy situation, our hard situation. He's breaking into our mess to bring light from the outside because darkness can't illuminate darkness. We need light from elsewhere. We need light from above. That's why Jesus came. You see, the people in Isaiah, they were crushed under famine and suffering, torn apart by political and social upheaval. In Isaiah 8, they're running everywhere uh, to all the great thinkers and philosophers of their day, to mediums and hyper-spiritualists. But the more and more they turn to each other for help, the more and more they look ultimately to creation for light, the more darkness they just find themselves in. And then chapter 9 begins. Chapter 9 begins, and we see a light has dawned. A light has dawned. On them, light has shone. It's not that they developed this light. It's not that they found this light. It's that this light found them. It's God intervening. It's God erupting into our situation to bring light from the outside. That is Christmas. That is Christmas. That God came down. That the maker of men became a man. So how does, how does a people in darkness respond to this hope of new light? How does a people ravaged by darkness finding themselves helpless throughout Isaiah 8 when Isaiah 9, when that darkness has shone on them, how does this people respond to the dawn of new light? How do we respond when the light of the gospel shines on our own darkened hearts. Verse 3 gives us the answer. It says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. You see, verse 3 tells us joy is the proper response. Joy is the proper response. Joy to the world because the Lord is come. Most of us know nothing of the joys of farming and harvest, but what we, we do share with the farmer is the joy that we feel when we see like the fruits of our labor, right? Like when we're laboring uh, at something and all of a sudden we start to, we're working really hard and, and then all of a sudden we start to reap a harvest from that. Right? Like the joy of maybe getting a Christmas bonus at the end of the year that you, after you didn't expect after just a long year of, of hard work. The joy that we mentioned like earlier of getting married after a season of waiting and engagement. If you're a teacher or, um, or a, a job like that, maybe it's the joy of like reaching tenure. If you're retired, it's the joy of drawing from that investment account for the first time. It's the joy of receiving something that you've longed for. 
something that you've been a part of that you've, you've longed to draw from. And if you're a Christian this morning, that type of joy is your story too. You've been called into the joy of this light. That's what Peter's been getting at when in that verse that we read earlier for our assurance of pardon. In, in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, You, church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, this passage tells us that the great light that humanity longs for is a person. Who is this person? Who is the one that brings light into the darkness and joy to those who are longing? Who is the great king of light, the one who will punish the darkness and restore all things to that good life that we once lost, that paradise that is lost? Who is this great savior? Read Isaiah 9, verse 6 with me. The verse that just moved Linda during the reading where it says, For us, to us, a child is born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who Christmas is about. This is who we celebrate this season. The day that God came and dwelled among us. The day that God came to say, enough of this darkness. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to take you from darkness and into marvelous light. So lastly, we see that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of our darkened world. So let's unpack the identity of this child of light. Let's unpack his identity using Isaiah 9 where it says, For to us a child is given, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? Right? What does that mean? The point of that phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulder, is to say that this child in the manger would be the one that will eventually rule over all things. Right? Like a A lot of us in this room are, 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 are skeptical of the idea of government right now, right? We're maybe frustrated, we're, we're skeptical, we're, we're, we're like, when is this whole thing going to get fixed? When is, when is this all going to be resolved? And the reason that we have that sense is because we understand that, that, that there's a sense of true government, which is good, which is beautiful, which is the standard of how things should be. And so when it says the government shall be upon his shoulder, it's talking about true government in the full sense of that word, that Jesus would be the one to truly rule over all things. He would govern in the truest sense of that word. Everything will be under his rule. Now, why is that important? Because all 
of the promises of hope and joy and light that we see in the Scriptures are only as good as the power and rule that Christ has to see them through. You see, if Jesus isn't sovereign, then how could you know that there is hope to be found in the most difficult of circumstances? If he is not sovereign, how can you be certain that things will work out in the end? We can have that assurance because this king rules. This king is the king of all kings. Because he has power, he can deliver all that he's promised. I've shared before the story of Corey Ten Boom and her sister. Corey Ten Boom and her sister, they ended up in a concentration camp in, 19, in the 1940s for, for helping uh, some Jews escape uh, Nazi rule. And they were in this concentration camp for the rest of the war. And, and during that time, life was as dark as it could have possibly been for them. They've witnessed the most vile things in these concentration camps. Like uh, uh, she writes about it. You can read in her autobiography. And at one point, Corey says to her sister, she says, man, this place is like the pit of hell. This is what hell must be like. And then Betsy says to her sister, she says, there's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. There's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. You see, your circumstances can't take you to some place that is beyond the power of God. Your circumstances, no matter how hard and difficult and powerful they might seem to you in the moment, they can never take you to some place outside of God's sovereign rule. Your despair can take you so far down that you're beyond his reach. There's no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. What else do we learn about the one called the great light? It says in Isaiah 9, verse 6, that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. You see, we see that wisdom is a person. Jesus is the source of all that is wise, all that is true and good. He will be faithful to guide you towards hope and towards holiness. He knows what we need to be saved, and he knows what we need to grow in the grace of God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's truth embodied. The word become flesh. And so that begs the question, are you listening to him? Do you listen to his voice, this wonderful counselor? You see, having Jesus as a wonderful counselor is good news for us because we, we live in what theologians call uh, the in-between, the time between the now and the not yet. You see, when Jesus returns, he will bring permanent joy and peace to our world. But until then... We live between the now, in other words, we already have the hope of Christ uh, as Christians, but we still long for the not, uh, the not yet. 
right? Now we still need wisdom for how to navigate the bumpy roads through the peaks and valleys of life. We seek counsel from so many different fleeting places, but Jesus, the creator of the universe, the Bible says, is our wonderful counselor. He's our available counselor. So do you seek his voice? Do you look to his word for promises and for guidance and for counsel. We also see in Isaiah 9 that he's called mighty God. Mighty God. You see, Jesus will be the warrior God, the mighty one, the one who's great in power. The Hebrew word there for in, in, in mighty, uh, saying that, that, that he's our mighty God, has this, uh, uh, has this sense of, of, of Jesus being a warrior for us. He fights for us. He protects us. This is God in the flesh. He's our hero, our champion, our knight in shining armor. He's an absolute beast, the one who beats the odds to save his people. That Hebrew word, Gabor, means he's our champion God, our heroic God. There's a big takeaway here because this is the first time in all of the Old Testament prophetic writings, the first time that we find out that this Savior is not just a mere man who's going to show up and be another earthly king like David or another earthly prophet by, like Moses, but this is going to be God himself. God himself, the way, the truth, and the life coming to us to fix all that is wrong, to crush the head of the enemy, to bless the nations of the, the earth, to expand the breadth of God's kingdom and family and the scope of God's glory. God is going to solve this himself. The incarnation of God the Son, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, meaning God, is with us. This Savior, this light will be our mighty God. And he's coming to us. He's also considered everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Now, this could obviously be confusing because we might be like, well, I thought Jesus was the Son, but here you're telling me he's the Father. Uh, but in, in Hebrew, the sense that we get here is that this passage isn't so much talking about his nature as God the Father, as it is about his, his fatherly, protective nature and responsibility that he has over us. You see, Jesus takes care of his own the way that a father is supposed to take care of his own. Sin severs our relationship with God, alienates us from him, but Jesus reconciles us, restores that relationship. So when you pray... Do you pray to God as a distant king on a throne, or do you pray through Christ as to God as a father? As, do you see yourself as a child of the living God? Jesus is called everlasting father so that we can have that identity, have that assurance. Lastly, he's called the prince of peace. 
the Prince of Peace. You see, Jesus is not only the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, but he's also the Prince of Peace. In other words, he is the one that's going to bring peace to God's people. That word for peace is, is shalom. Shalom. And it's, it's, it's this word that is full of, of spiritual and physical flourishing. It reminds us that Jesus isn't just here to fix you on the inside, but that his saving work uh, is far more cosmic. Where there was once death, Jesus brings life. Where there was once hunger, Jesus satisfies. Where there was once alienation from God, Jesus reconciles. Where there was once anxiety and sadness, Jesus brings inner peace. Where there's brokenness in the world, brokenness in creation, Jesus will make all of it whole. You can't help but hear the echo of this in Revelation, the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, verse 5, when Jesus says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. I have come to make all things new. You see, that's what the light of joy is all about. It's not a vain wish. It's a joyful expectation that all things will be made new. Jesus came. He historically came. He really came. He came as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. I love how this passage ends. Uh, it's, I don't think I have a slide for this, but in verse 7, it says that his kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will have no end. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's zeal will ensure that this carries through to completion. Now, there's a sort of weight to this sentence. It's as if God is saying, look, I got this. I got this. My zeal will carry this through. His passion drives him to action. God's love is not some passive emotion, but it's the settled decision in the sovereign will of God to actively move on behalf of his people. You see, up to this point, We've had centuries of silence. All Israel could hear when they got this good news was, was just the noise of their present issues. Their circumstances and, and, and just the, their world was falling apart. But here God says the time has come. The time has come for light to shine, for hope to come. He's spoken a word of hope to them. So let me ask you this morning. Have you ever felt like God is silent? Maybe this morning, like, do you feel like God is silent? Like he's distant? Or do you have a sense that he's near to you? That light has shone. That hope has come. Jesus came. 
He came to seek after us. He came to pursue us. And because of his great love, a great light has dawned, signaling the end of the shadow of death, signaling the beginning of a new hope. Look, the place that you need the light of joy the most is not outside of you, but, but inside of you. You see the real damage that sin has done. Like Oscar pointed out during our prayer of confession, the real damage that sin has done is just personally to our own hearts. The real question of the light of joy is not, is there light for that darkness out there, but is there light for the darkness in here? Inside of me. That is the question. That is the question. That is what we ultimately long for, to be made right, to be settled in our souls right here. That is the question, and Isaiah 9 tells us, yes, there is light for the darkness in here. In all of your foolishness, wisdom has come. In all of your weakness, might has come. In all of your alienation, adoption into God's family has come. And in your brokenness, peace has come. There is joy. There is hope. Because God came to be with us. question I want to leave you with this morning is do you have this hope? Do you have the hope of Christmas? Do you have the hope of Christmas this morning? I'm not talking about an intellectual hope where you know the gospel, you know intellectually that you have a hope, but I'm talking about a hope that burns. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said, it's one thing to know that honey is sweet, but it's something else entirely to know, have a sense of its sweetness, to know what that tastes like. Do you know what hope tastes like? Do you know what it feels like? Look, I know that the Christmas season can be just crazy and nuts and depressing. Do you have hope in the middle of that? When people are around you, do they get a sense that you're somebody who says, there's hope for me? And do they get a sense that if they're around you, that maybe they can learn about that hope too. You see, that is the hope of the Advent season. The fact that light has shone. That even in now, even though after the light has come, we still long for the not yet. And we have hope today because of the knowledge of what Christ has done because of the promise of what he will carry through to completion. In a moment, 
we're going to take communion together. And as we take communion, this is an opportunity for those of us who are Christians, who've been baptized into the faith. It's an opportunity for us to have really a tangible taste of this hope. You see, Jesus is after our whole selves, and communion reminds us of that. He's not just after the intellectual, but he's after the flesh and blood. He's after the tangible. And so as we take the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. When we take up the cup, we remember his blood that was spilt for us. Jesus had a real body with real blood. The maker of men became a man. Because light has shone from above. Hope has come. Do you know this hope? Do you know the hope that he came to bring? And do you look forward to the greater hope to come? Let me close again with these words from Isaiah chapter 9. When he said, for us, for to us a child is born. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His kingdom will never end, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.